Guys, if you have a Bible, now would be a great time to grab it, open it, turn it on. You're very welcome to grab one of the NIV paperbacks out of the, one of the boxes in either one of the two center aisles there and open it up to Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. This is the sixth letter out of the seven that were written to the seven churches in the Roman province of Asia in the first century. And this is probably the one letter that I've been the most excited about since we started our, our work through the book of Revelation. So here we are. This is the letter to the church in Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Amen. So there you go. Letter to the church in Philadelphia. Um, one of the longer letters out of the seven, I might point out. Um, the way I'm going to break this down for us as we look through some of the, the more significant aspects of it, we can go to the next slide, please, is like this. Two I knows, two beholds, a door lies, and the holy and true one who holds the key of David. Quickly, the key of David, that's in Isaiah 22. It's actually 22, verse 22 reference. Um, it essentially has to do with the authority of the king, the one who decides who gets to come into the city and who's not allowed, who opens the door that no one can shut, etc. It's Isaiah 22, 22. But let's start with the two I knows. The first I know is I know your works. Now I want to emphasize in this particular letter the fact that Jesus is constantly noticing the works of these churches that he's writing to. In fact, um, out of the seven letters, five of them begin by J Jesus saying, I know your works. I acknowledge your works. 
Uh, The second and third letters, which were written to Smyrna and Pergamum, he actually says to Smyrna, I know your tribulation. And to the church in Pergamum, he says, I know your habitation, or I know where you dwell. But for the other five churches, including the last one, which we'll look at next week, he begins by saying, I know your works. And it's all positive. Now, to be sure, last week, um, we looked at the, uh, the letter to the church in um, Sardis, and he acknowledges that the church is working well, but there's something terribly wrong in their heart. Nevertheless, he acknowledges that, guys, you guys are working hard, and that's good. You're working hard, and that's good. Um, I believe it's what Paul is thinking about when he writes to the church in Corinth. This is 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of you. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Um, Additionally, in Philippians 2.13, Paul, again writing this time to the church in Philippi, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then finally, amen, that got a good one, okay. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.7, this is actually the amplified translation. I love this. Again, Paul writing this time to young Timothy He says, have nothing to do with irreverent folklore and silly myths. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, keeping yourself spiritually fit. God encourages us to take the grace that he's freely given us. Well, I shouldn't say freely because he paid for it. It was very, very costly. It's free to us. Take the grace that I've given you and use it to its full effect. The Apostle Paul, if anyone in all of Scripture understood anything about grace, understood that grace wasn't simply a free ticket to heaven. Grace was something to be applied so that as we work out our salvation, we find God's power at work within us to will and to work out our salvation. Now, the reason why I think that's quite important to emphasize is because of this. Okay, we're Protestants. I'm Protestant, for whatever it's worth. Um, And back in the 16th century, there was like a revolution that took place in the church of Jesus. And it was as if God's people almost rediscovered the gospel. Something had happened along the way, and I'm no historian, but the church had entered into a very dark time, and somehow they lost their way, and they began to think that you can earn God's favor, you can get God to do stuff for you, in a way you can almost even like secure your salvation if you work hard enough. If you pay for indulgences, if, if if you go through all the steps, if you become pious enough, and God will be impressed with you, and you can earn your way to heaven, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then this revolution broke out, and a lot of people attribute Calvin, go Lutherans, I mean Martin Luther, Calvin, and, and it was like they rediscovered the gospel, and they remember, because the scriptures tell us clearly that we're not saved by works, but we're saved by 
a work, and that is the work that God did for us on the cross. It's the perfect work. He did for us what we can't do for ourselves, and then he freely offers it to us. And you really can't like overemphasize that. You can't, you can't lean too hard into the fact that, and this is, this is a free gift from God. Like it's not what I do, it's what he's done for me. But as Protestants, what we sometimes do, we lean so hard back one way that we forget that actually there's a whole life that we're meant to live in the wake of God's free gift of salvation, that God's grace is actually for life as well as salvation. Or I'd put it this way, salvation is more than just getting to heaven. It's more than just being forgiven. You might call that justification. God's grace is also for our sanctification. And God expects us to work that out and to to take the grace, to take his spirit that he now has filled us with and work hard like the Apostle Paul. He said, I worked harder than all of you, which I find almost comical. Yet not me, but God at work in me. What a beautiful paradox. What a beautiful paradox. So that's the first I know. Is that funny? Work is good, it's necessary. The result, behold. Behold. This is the first behold. I've set before you an open door. If you're sort of tracking the logic of the letter, the flow of the letter, you could really read it as, I see your work, therefore, I've opened a door that no one can shut. How about that? Has the illustration just impacted you greatly? (laughs) You guys don't even know. You don't even know. I see your work. I see how faithful you've been. I see that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. That speaks to the Philadelphians, um, not only outward actions, but the integrity of their heart. You've, you've not denied my name. You've not forgotten who I am and who you are. And therefore, behold, I've opened a door before you that no one can shut. Awesome. What's on the other side of the door, I wonder? If you were a Philadelphian and this letter was being read to you, and Jesus said, and I've seen your work. You guys are doing so well. You've been faithful. You've been obedient. You've trusted me in all aspects of your lives. Um, you've not given in to the temptation to compromise. You've not gone the way of the world. You've not gone the way of the Romans. You know who you are. You've, you've continued to follow me with heart, mind, soul, and strength. Behold, I've set an open door before you. How cool is that? If you were a Philadelphian and you were hearing those words, what would you like to be on the other side of the store? Like, think about your life right now. Heaven. Like, take me now, Jesus. I'm coming home. Okay, let's say you're not going to die. Let's say Jesus isn't coming back, although he did say he's coming soon. We must talk much more about that. But let's say, okay, never mind, never mind Philadelphia. Let's say in Portland, and you know, I'm a Christian. I, I get the work bit, okay? I get that actually 
God doesn't just save me to like sit around waiting for him to like come back or me to die and go to heaven. Like there's a whole life to live. And, and it's, it's, it's proper, it's biblical, it's, it's, it's gospel that I would roll up my sleeves and become a co-laborer with Jesus and get to work, which is why Paul applies metaphors like the hardworking farmer and the athlete that trains according to the rules and the soldiers that, that's disciplined. And, and this is the life that we're called to live by the grace of God. His grace is more than enough for the life that he's called us to live. And oftentimes it's this hard, intense, amazing Life, it's abundant life. And you're doing all that the best you can. And God says, right, I see your work. You're doing so well. I've opened the door. What would you like to be on the other side? What do you think is on the other side? A new building. building. (laughs) Perhaps, maybe. Maybe. Um, now, some of you might, might be objecting. You might be thinking to yourself, hang on a second. So let's say I'm doing all those things. I'm working hard. I'm obeying Jesus. I'm seeking his kingdom first. There's so many different ways it's, it's worded in the Bible. Does that mean I automatically get an open door? Is that, is that what I should expect every time? Uh, the answer is actually no. If you're a Philadelphian, yeah. It would seem that's exactly what, what's happening. Um, it wasn't the case for the other churches. Uh, for example, as I mentioned a minute ago, Sardis, they were hardworking. And one could argue that their working was right, but their heart was all wrong. They didn't get an open door. They got, they got discipline, that's what they got. Um, what about the parable of the prodigal son? This is helpful. It's familiar, it's a very, it's, even if you're not Christian, even, even if you didn't grow up in Sunday school, you, you've probably at least heard of the parable of the prodigal son. It's the story that Jesus told about a young man who, who decided to rebel. And he asked his father, can I have my inheritance early? Pretty offensive. Like, come on and die already. Can I, can I go ahead and have my inheritance? And so the father gives it to him. And it says that the son, he goes off into a distant land and he squanders it. He just, he just wastes it. Eventually, one day, he, he wakes up in a, in a pigsty, and it says he comes to his senses, and he thinks, man, I was way better off in my father's house. I must go home, and he thinks to himself, I'll, I'll go home, and I'll make a big speech to my dad, and I'll apologize, and perhaps I can convince him to let me back in the house if I swear to, like, make it all right. I'll, I'll pay it off. I'll, I'll become a servant. Um, as the story goes, he gets home, and just as he's coming over the horizon, the father sees him and just starts running towards him. He throws his arm around the son, and before the boy can get a single word out, the father is like, save your speech, you're home. Get inside, let's throw a party. He covers him with the robe, he puts the family ring on his finger, new sandals, all this stuff. It's this beautiful picture of God's grace. 
We come home. It's like, dude, you're home. You were once lost. Now you're found. You were once dead. Now you're alive. Get in the house, boy. We're going to have a party. There was another son. It was the older son. It's the other half of the story. So the son had a brother, an older brother, and it says the brother actually heard all of the commotion, and he began to think to himself, oh, what's the deal? What, my brother's home, so we're going to have a party? We're going to spend all of this money? And he's like indignant about it. And his father leaves the house. He goes to his other son, his older son, and he says, son, come in. Your, your brother's home. Let's celebrate. And the older son says, your son, he doesn't even call him his brother, my little brother, he says, your son, you know, he wasted the inheritance and he comes home, you're going to give him a party? I've always done everything you've ever asked me to do. Where's my party? And the father's response is, son, everything I have is yours. It's always been yours. Come inside. Enjoy. And it says the son refuses. Or really the story just ends. But you're left with this lingering thought. That, wow, he, the door was open, but he refused to go inside? Sometimes you can do everything right. The older son, he'd done it all right. It's the story's told. But because of his own pride, sense of like worth, like you owe me, I deserve this. I, you know, I, I, it's almost this picture of like the son who thought he could manipulate his father into blessing him because he had done it all right for so long. And father, father's like, no, you can't earn my love. Like, you just can't. It's the nature of who I am. It's the nature of how I love you. You can't earn it. Just get in the house. And he refused. We can do everything right. We can work our butts off in the name of Jesus. And yet the door's not necessarily always open to us. In the case of the Philadelphians, it would seem that their hard work plus their soft hearts equaled an open door from Jesus. But what if you've worked really, really hard You've said all your prayers. You're not the older son. You're not the church in Sardis. And yet the door is still closed. You ever feel that way? What do you do when... It feels like God, like I've done everything you've asked me to do. I uh, stopped sleeping around. I um, started giving money to the church. I, I've been like loving the people around me as best that I can. Like I've actually been working on this. I've, I've been putting the work in. God knows I've been, I've been doing my best. And, uh, and gosh, like I think my heart's soft. Like I'm, I'm, I'm trying every day. God, you know, I'm asking you. God, help me. Search my heart. Let me know if there's anything in me that needs to come out. I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to pull a fast one on you, genuinely. And, and it's like for the life of you, 
you're working hard, you're, you're bringing your, your, your heart before God, but the door is just shut. Like, man, what do I do with that? Am I being punished? Am I missing something? Is my theology off? Is God just mad at me? Is this a game? Is God even real? Are you with me? Have you ever been in that place? What do you do with a door that's been closed when you have been working hard? And man, you have put your heart out there and the door feels like it's just slamming your face. Behold the synagogue of Satan. The liars. There's another piece to this puzzle. There's another um, character in this drama. It's the synagogue of Satan. It's those who apparently are all about lying. If you can't see this over here, it just says lies. This is the second behold. Well, rather, I must skip the second I know. He says, I know your works. Behold the open door. But then he goes on to say, I also know that you have but little power. Enter the synagogue of Satan. There's a conflict here. There are opposing forces. What Jesus is saying you can do everything right. Well, not everything. You can work real hard. And you can even have a, a right heart. But you still have utterly limited power. Introducing the synagogue of Satan. Those who would lie to you. So, what am I talking about? Who, who are the synagogue of Satan? They're mentioned only two times, three times actually, twice um, in these letters. I forget they have the letter, one of like the second church or something. The synagogue of Satan, these, these liars, those who pose as like the religious elite, and it's not anti Semitic at all, it's just, it's, it's these people who act religious, and yet there's something about them that they just lie to you. And I would argue that these aren't necessarily people, they, they certainly could be, but there's like a spirit of accusation. There's a spirit of anti-truth that seems to stalk God's people. And when you're doing everything right, and you're following Jesus, and you're trying to be obedient, and you're making sacrifices, and you're laying down your life so that you might find a new life in Jesus, and then you keep running into this closed door, and it's like there's a lie facing you in that place. What kind of, what, what kind of lies have you ever been told in your life that would make you feel like I'm doing my best but I just keep hitting a brick wall? So I've been praying about this all week and I was just asking the Holy Spirit, you know, what, what, what is it? Talk, talk, talk to me, help, help me. What are the lies that I'm believing? What are the lies that my brothers and sisters are perhaps believing? And I think some of them might sound something like this. You are a reject. Your father rejected you when you were this big. You are rejected. You will always be a reject. You're broken. You're a pervert. You're gross. You've done certain things that you're so painfully ashamed of 
that even the thought of being exposed paralyzes you. You're unlovable. You're unloved. You're misunderstood. No one cares. You're in the way. You're insignificant. You're irrelevant. You want to believe that you actually have purpose, but at the core of your being, you doubt it because you've been lied to all your life. That person who should have been there to protect you instead touched you. And for now, your whole life, you've just felt gross. Your whole sexuality is in knots. You've been looking for someone to love you your whole life. You can't seem to feel loved. Why? Because someone's lied to you. And sometimes it's not even in words. It's that, it's that betrayal. It's that loss. It's that whatever happens in the limbic part of your brain where it's not even words, not necessarily an idea that you can articulate. You just know at some point, once upon a time, something happened and it left me seeing myself a certain way. And no matter how hard I try, I just keep running into this locked door. We have but limited power. We're weak, we're finite. There's a temptation when you get to the door and you see that lie staring back at you to, uh, to panic a bit. And you might think to yourself, man, um, I just got to get this door open. I got to get it, I get, or I got to find a new door. I got to get around the door. I've got to disassemble the door. Who the heck locked the door? And we can begin to frantically look about us and think like, it, it's, it's that person or it's, 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 it's that. And we can begin to demonize the people around us or we can end up living in a past traumatic moment and just stay in bondage to that person or that moment or that feeling Never looking forward, never believing that there is hope. We often think to ourselves, actually the problem is my circumstances. The problem are my, is my circumstances. If I just had a little more. If I just, 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 if I just had that spouse, if I just had that job, if I just had that dream come true, if just my circumstances were different, then that, that would change everything. I would finally feel whole. Let's add another lie to the, to the door, shall we? The problem isn't your circumstances. The problem isn't my circumstances. Now, not to marginalize circumstantial problems. Okay, I'm not saying that at all. Guys, let's, let's face it, problems are life. It's just everyone's got problems. Your problem aren't your circumstances, your problem is your story. Once upon a time, once upon a time, and it begins right there. Once upon a time, a little boy was told that he was stupid. Once upon a time, a little girl was grossly betrayed 
by the man that should have been protecting her. Once upon a time, that sensitive young little person was rejected. And you're tempted to look back and be like, oh, how petty, how silly. Why? I'm, I'm a grown-up now. Why? It shouldn't matter anymore, right? But it does. It always does. And wait till you're 40 years old, sitting in a room with a therapist, bawling your eyes out because of what your dad said or didn't say to you when he should have 40 years ago. It matters. Lies. Lies are real. Circumstances, eh, we'll figure it out. You're homeless, I got a couch. I got two. I even got a spare bedroom. My wife and I put all three kids in one room so that we could have a guest room. So if you're looking for a twin bed, we'll hook you up. What's your story? Once upon a time, God has a different story for us. The gods of this world will always happily seek to define you. They'll name you. They have an origin story for you. And the ending's always an utter disappointment. Jesus has a different story. He's got a new name for you. He's got a new home for you. He's got a new family for you. He rewrites your story from the beginning all the way until eternity's end. What then do we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things? Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, his children? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. He has the key of David, who indeed is interceding, praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus gives us a new story. He asks the question, who's lied to you? This was the question God asked Adam and Eve in the garden. Who told you? Who told you you were naked? Who told you you were dirty? Who told you you were stupid? Who told you you were worthless? Who told you you were unloved? Who told you you'll never amount to anything? I am the true and holy one. Jesus says, I have a new story for you and I will open doors that no one, that was supposed to break. (laughs) Gabe, help me. There we go. 
Okay, we tried, we tried. You have no idea how excited I was to kick that thing off the hinges. <laughs> it's, it's what I get for asking a really, really good builder to create a door for me. You guys get the point. Jesus gives us a new story. He shines his light on those dark places. He exposes lies. Of course, the lies aren't just like in our heads. Stuff actually happens. Some of you in here, I'm just saying this statistically, have been raped, molested, abandoned by a parent. And there's a lie, there's a whole story that's wrapped up in that. That's not going to just magically disappear because you wish it to. Those are real things, those are real traumas. But Jesus begins to meet us in those painful places, those dark places. And he says, I need you to see how I see you. I need you to know that there's a more powerful truth. A truth that supersedes the lie. Because Jesus doesn't just tell us new truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Jesus said, I am the door. Jesus makes us new. He pours his love into our hearts by his very spirit who dwells within us. Does that sound mystical to you? It absolutely is. This is the power of God that transforms a life. It doesn't just pretend like it never happened. It pushes out that fear. It displaces that darkness. It tells a story that's more true, that's compelling, that exposes darkness, that shows you the lie so that we can begin to live the way God has created us to live in the first place. And you know what's on the other side of this door? You know on the other side of the store? He says, behold, those liars will come and bow down at your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. They will be forced to acknowledge that the greater one loves you. I will make them eat their lies and admit that I am the king of kings. I am the true one, not me, Jesus. Sorry, I get into these little prophetic moments. <laughs> What's on the other side of this door? It's a world looking on that says, 
Man, the world threw everything it had at that person. They should not be smiling right now. They should have, their life should have ended a long time ago. They should be strung out. They should be destitute. They should be lonely. They should be suicidal. They should be all of these things because of these lies. But instead, they have joy. They have hope. They're growing the, the power of his might. They're rising up. They're not on the ground. They're not just getting by. They're not lying to themselves They're not pretending like they haven't been hurt, but they have a love that surpasses lies that's rising up in them. And as the world looks on, they will be forced to acknowledge that these people are loved by the holy and true one. That's what's over here. This is the open door. This is where we're meant to live. This is our destiny. It begins now and lasts until heaven comes, which is where Revelation goes. Can't wait to get there. Gosh, I've been excited to to preach this sermon. (laughs) Where are you at? How are you feeling? What lies has the enemy trying to been has the enemy been trying to sell you? Most of us will attempt to work around the lies. Let me say this and then I'll end. You can tell that someone's really struggling with lies when they present themselves as slightly arrogant or slightly defensive or slightly prideful, the kind of person that's constantly like reminding you of like how awesome they are, how skilled they are, this or that, constantly promoting themselves. You know why we do that? It's because you're desperately trying to like work around that lie that is just resounding in your soul. It's very easy to just dismiss that person. It's like, wow, you're, you're very uh, annoying and, and abrasive or arrogant and you should just really go away. In fact, they're the very person that needs the family of God to come around them and be like, let me remind you of, of who God says you are because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Can, can I tell you your story? Are you forgetting your story? Can I lay my hands on you and pray asking the king of glory to come in and fill you with his love once again. Guys, some of you, you're in that place. I know some of you, I don't know all of you, obviously, but I know some of you, and I'm like, man, you, you really, the enemy's, man, really working overtime. Really working overtime. Marketing his lies in all sorts of creative manners. You need to let Jesus open that door for you and begin to tell you his story. Someone who went to get baptized today? Who wants to get baptized today? Camden, you're in? Laura, you're in? Who else wants to get baptized today? Okay, tell you what, 
Um, our worship team's gonna come up and we're gonna have a moment to worship the king. Um, this will be a moment for you to reflect. This could be even a moment for you to receive prayer. And I wanna invite you, if you'd like someone to pray for you, just kinda make your way down front while our worship team is, is leading us. Uh, there'll be a few people, some leaders um, here who can pray with you. While that's happening, um, if you need to change to get wet, uh, feel free to just use the bathrooms downstairs. I'm gonna go change myself real quick. And be thinking about, if you've never been baptized, but you are a follower of Jesus, or you want to follow Jesus and begin to live out his story for your life, if you wanna turn away from the lies, even your own sin, and begin to live according to his story, his truth, his life, you can do that this morning. Baptism, it's, a, it's this incredible like, enactment of, of that reality. Jesus died, he was buried. When we go under the water, we're being buried with Jesus. We're dying to our old self. All those lies, they get left in the water. They get left in the grave to decay and turn to dust. When we come up out of the water, and it's much faster than that, we come up out of the water, it's new life, new hearts, new creation. Something new begins to happen, and you get to start to live that out. You get to work that out by God's grace. And if that means something to you this morning, you're like, man, I've never been baptized, but that sounds amazing, I challenge you. Don't leave here thinking, yeah, I'll, I'll think about that. Really? Maybe, maybe. I want to pressure you too much. Or maybe the Holy Spirit's like, no, like now, now. Do it now. I don't, so what? You'll get wet. Big deal. You, we have towels. And I'm going to give you an opportunity before we leave here today, even if you didn't plan on it. I'm going to have a little awkward moment at the end to let you come up and get baptized. Can we stand together, please? listening to Grace City Portland.